Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. I grew up in a nominal Christian home. The religion wasn't very prominent or important to us, and we went to a major denomination. I went to Sunday school faithfully every Sunday as a child, and so I guess I missed the message somehow because I really didn't get saved. In my teenage years, I drifted off and away from church, and in, when I was 19 years old, though, someone took the time to explain the gospel to me. And for the first time, I began to understand that I needed salvation. I needed to be saved. And I asked questions and had to sort a few things out. But at the age of 19, I became a born-again Christian. I became absolutely sure that I was saved, and I've never doubted my salvation since that time. I know that today, if I die, I'm going to heaven. Or if the Lord returns... I'm going to heaven. And I know with 100% absolute certainty that I will be in his kingdom with him forever. Amen? Well, some would say, not so fast, Charlie. Have you examined yourself to see if you really believe? Have you checked your works to see if they're consistent, good works? And what about those sins in your life? And can you really say that you will live forever in God's kingdom because we don't know if you will persevere in your faithfulness and good works until the end of your life? Maybe somewhere along the way you'll fall away or you'll fall into deep sin and you will die in sin because there is a death uh, unto sin. So not so fast, they would say. And you'll find that the verse that is often used is this verse, Matthew 24 and verse 13, which simply says, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. So what we want to do is we're going to look at this passage, which perhaps you've heard used before to say that you really can't know that you're saved until the end because things can happen along the way. And there's really two different ways that people will look at it. But usually the way it's interpreted is that you must persevere in faith and good works until the end of your life to prove that you are saved. Okay, so what that means, the implication is if you persevere in faith and good works until the end of your life, you can know that you're saved. So what that, verse, what that position is telling us is that you cannot really know for sure until you die. Okay? Now, do you see a problem with that interpretation or some problems? Well, I do, and I see some theological problems because it makes salvation dependent on our works or our performance. But we know Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 very well. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, not by works, because if we have any part in it, we can boast, right? So there's a theological problem there, the whole doctrine of justification through faith alone, which is what I hope you and I believe. There are some practical problems too, because it would then make, if we have to persevere to the end, it would then make assurance of salvation impossible, full assurance of salvation impossible. 
because we could not say with certainty today that I, I know fully, absolutely, I am saved because I can't predict what will happen in the future. And the other practical problem is it weakens our gospel offer. Think about that. When we share the gospel with somebody and we leave them a track and, uh, and we, t- we tell them, this is how you can become a Christian and be saved. And when I tell people, you can know for sure that you're saved. But if you have a different interpretation of what it means to persevere to the end, you would really have to present the gospel by saying, well, here's Jesus Christ. You need to believe in him as your Savior, and then you will be saved, maybe. Or you can know with almost certainty that you're saved. Or you can be pretty sure that you're saved. Or you can be hopeful that you're saved. You know, the Puritans, who were uh, very strong in their belief about this idea of perseverance, used to call those who believed in Jesus Christ, not Christians, not converts, but hopeful converts. So the best that that gospel offer can make is a hopeful offer that somebody has believed in Jesus, and I just hope that I persevere to the end and prove my salvation. There's also a biblical problem. When I said I'm a Bible guy, and as a Bible guy, I like to look at the context, and the problem here is that it ignores the context, the popular view of that passage. So let's look at that passage in context. But first of all, we need to understand, where does this interpretation come from? We're going to find that this interpretation that we have to persevere to the end to know that we're saved to the end of our life uh, comes from any theological system that includes performance in our salvation. Any theological system that includes our performance in, in our salvation. Now, there are two major theological systems that represent kind of the two extremes in theology, and one is called, I'm going to call it tulip Calvinism, because there's different kinds of Calvinism, and there's re- Reformed, some call it Reformed Calvinism, some call it five-point Calvinism, but I'm talking about the strong five-point Calvinist represented by the acronym TULIP, which I'll explain in just a minute. And then there's the other end of the theological spectrum, which is called Arminianism, which emphasizes the role of man and responsibility of man and says that uh, we can actually lose our salvation. Now, let me please say to you that I'm not picking on either system. I'm just going to tell you what they believe about this passage, and you can draw your own conclusions. You, you could be from one uh, end of this spectrum or the other today. I'm just going to state some of the facts. And uh, just to make sure that we're on the same page in our understanding, when we talk about Calvinism, somebody asked me yesterday, they said, are you a Calvinist? I said, well, define what you mean by Calvinism because uh, there are different definitions for different people. But I'm talking about the five-point Calvinist that adheres to the TULIP acronym, and it goes like this. It starts with the T for total depravity. But their view of total depravity in this system is that man is absolutely unable to respond to God in any way. Man is totally dead, and a dead corpse cannot respond to God. That's their understanding of the human condition. I have a different understanding of the human condition, that we are totally depraved in the sense that we're totally separated from God, 
but since I am still in the image of God, I can respond to the truth. And that God allows me through his Holy Spirit and his word, he prompts me, initiates me, he can uh, convict me of my sin and his truth, but in the end, I still have the ability to respond to God. So, but they begin, but that we're a dead corpse and we cannot respond at all. And so the second condition, uh, the second you, uh, letter U, is unconditional election. Therefore, since we cannot respond at all, God has to choose us, all of his initiative and sovereign will, and without any conditions on our part at all. It's totally, salvation is totally of him. And therefore, the L follows, limited atonement. Jesus did not die for everyone. He only died for those that God chose. Because if he, if he died for somebody who was not chosen, then that would be diminishing and wasting the death of Jesus Christ. So Jesus only died for those who are the elect. That's called limited atonement. And then the I, irresistible grace, it's all, they all follow like dominoes. Um, the I, irresistible grace, since Jesus, God chose you, and we have nothing to do with it, and since Jesus died for you, and we cannot respond in any way, then God's going to, to place his grace upon us. He's got to make us born again so that we can believe, and he will even have to give us the faith to believe. That's what this system actually teaches. So we have to be born again or regenerate in order to believe. It's all from God not from ourselves. Now, you tell me if you think that's the biblical order. I have some disagreements with that. And then we come to the P, which is the final one, which is the logical conclusion, because if God puts his grace upon me and puts his faith in me, and it's all of God and not of me, then of course I'm going to live the kind of life that he has preordained I should live. And I will persevere to the end. And then I will prove that I am one of the elect. Now, do you understand what tulip Calvinism is kind of saying, okay? So that's how they would approach a verse like this, and they often do use this verse. And um, their creed is in the Westminster Confession, and it reads like this in the, in the formal uh, sense in uh, chapter 17. They whom God has accepted in his beloved, effectually called and sanctified by the Spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but certainly shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. Now, that's their official belief, okay? And if we would quoted some of the uh, modern-day adherents to Tulip Calvinism, who would themselves profess to be Tulip Calvinism, Calvinists, uh, very f- well-known people like R.C. Sproul, he says of his own testimony, he says, I began to take stock of my life, and I looked at my performance. My sins came pouring into my mind, and the more I looked at myself, the worse I felt, and I thought, maybe it's really true. Maybe I'm not saved after all. You see, that's where it leaves him. Uh, everyone knows John MacArthur in a radio broadcast. He kind of says it in a different way that uh, gets your attention. He said, you may be a spiritual defector who hasn't defected yet. So you see, you have to hang in there and persevere to the end to prove that you're truly saved. So that's coming from one extreme called tulip Calvinism. The other extreme on the theological spectrum when we talk about salvation issues is Arminianism. And um, they believe that you can lose your salvation by sinning. And a very well-known Arminian is Robert Shank. He says, obviously, salvation can be known only as one finally perseveres or fails to persevere in faith. There is no valid assurance of election and final salvation for any man apart from deliberate, deliberate perseverance in faith. 
Okay, so those are his words, and that's how he would interpret this idea of persevering. I would have some questions for uh, those who believe, like Robert Shank and the Arminians, that you can lose your salvation. My questions would be, um, which sins lose salvation? Is there a definitive biblical list of sins that would cause us to lose salvation? How many sins would it take to lose salvation, or how often would I have to commit them? And how do you know when you've lost your salvation? And then, if you lose your salvation, how do you get saved again? Because you've already believed in Jesus Christ as your Savior. So what is left to be done? So I have some questions like that for those on the Arminian side of the perspective. Now, when people ask me, are you a Calvinist or are you Arminian? What I tell them, with, and not trying to be arrogant or difficult, I just simply say, I'm a Biblicist. I'm a biblicist. I believe the Bible, and I go where the Bible leads me. I don't go where theology pushes me. I go where the Bible leads me. And if it contrasts with uh, the theological system I might hold, then I have to look at my theology again. But in the in the end, I'm going to finish. I'm going to uh, I'm going to believe what the Bible says uh, first. And what the Bible says is that God has saved us with by his grace, for by grace you have been saved. Now, grace is everything we don't deserve for anything that we need. Grace means that is God's unmerited favor. It's everything we don't deserve. We don't deserve to be saved. We don't deserve to live forever. We don't deserve to have our sins forgiven, but God is so gracious. Our God of all grace, he's called, provides us by his grace the way of salvation, and he does that through his son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross. And when Jesus died on the cross, the sins of the world, yours and mine's, were placed on him. And he died on the cross, paying the price once and for all for all of our sins. And he said, it is finished. And I think he meant it. He didn't say it's 90% finished. You've got to do the last part. He didn't say it's almost finished. Jesus did not die as a down payment on my salvation. I really believe he said it's finished. And that means all I have to do is accept what he's done for me. So that means believe what he's done. To accept what he's done is to believe what he has done for me. So God's grace is all sufficient, and it's God's performance that saves me, not, not my performance. It's not me keeping the law, doing good. It's not me uh, repenting of every sin I've ever done because I don't know every sin I've ever done. So there's all kinds of things that people say you have to do, but it's all what God has done. It's his performance. But when we compare these two extremes, the tulip Calvinist says, well, you have to have a faith that works. But in the end, that ends up being our performance. And the Arminian would say, you have to have faith and works. But in the end, again, that's our performance. And I think that contrasts with what the Bible says. I have to go where the Bible leads me, that God's grace is all sufficient. It's Jesus Christ that has done all the work on my behalf, and there's nothing I can do to work or earn his grace. All I can do is accept it through faith. Okay? So I call myself a biblicist. The results of performance salvation, just to kind of review this, is tulip Calvinism would say, and teach that once saved, always saved. The problem is the tulip Calvinist doesn't know that he was once saved. Um, but since one does not know he is saved until the end, he cannot have full assurance 
that he is saved in the present. Okay? And an honest tulip Calvinist will admit to you that they do not know 100% sure that they are saved. Now, the Arminian, on the other hand, would teach that one can have present assurance of present salvation today if we're living in the faith and we're walking faithfully. We can know that we're saved, but they cannot have a present assurance of future salvation because they can't predict the future, and they may fall away or they may sin in such a way as to lose their salvation. So do you understand the two systems and a little bit of how they differ and, uh, but both of them, what I, really what I want you to see, and be, again, I'm not being mean to these systems. This, I'm just stating what they say, and I'm stating what they already know. I'm not making things up. This is what they say. Uh, but both of them, in the end, depend upon human performance. And that's not what I read when I understand the gospel of grace. So what does Matthew 24, 13 have to do with all this, and what does it mean in context? Now we want to dig in to the passage itself. Um, you've already heard a good message on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, I mean the, the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. I know Tommy I spoke on that the other night, and uh, others have referred to it. But in that, as you know, in that discourse, Jesus was answering the disciples' questions about the future of Israel and the consummation of all things. And so we read there, uh, I don't even think I'll read that, but they were sitting there. Jesus talked to them about how um, uh, the buildings of the temple were going to be destroyed. And, um, and they asked him, they said, uh, here, they said, tell us when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of your age? Now, we want to keep track of that word end, okay, because that's, that's an important word to us. Their question is, what will be the signs of your coming and the end of the age, the, the present age as opposed to the messianic age, okay? That was their question. Jesus' answer tells them about conditions in the present world. And he said to them, that, take heed, no one deceive you, for many will come in my name and say, I am the Christ and will deceive many. And you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars, see that you're not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. Okay? So these present-day troubles where nations are fighting against each other and kingdoms against kingdoms and famines and all these things, that's not the end yet. He goes on in verse 9 to talk about the beginning of the end of the tribulation period. They, deli- they will deliver you. Who's the you? Israel, he's talking to the Jews about their future, talking to Israel. They will deliver you up to tribulation. And we know that to be Daniel's 70th week, the seven years of tribulation. And kill you, you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Nothing new there, is it? The world hates Israel now, but it will be, it will be intensified in the tribulation period. There will be an intense effort by all the nations of the world to come against Israel and exterminate them once and for all. And then many will be offended and betray one another, and they will hate one another, and there will be many false prophets who will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. And then our verse, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. Now, he would probably refer then to the Jewish people, to that, those Jews who, refer, who endures to the end, the end of what? The end of the tribulation period, when everybody's trying to kill them. Those who remain uh, 
faithful trusting in God through this tribulation period, trusting in God to protect them and trying to serve him faithfully, will be saved. We're going to talk about that word save there also. And the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as witness to the nations, and then the end will come. Okay? Now, you're starting to get an idea of what the end is referring to. Is it talking about the end of our physical lives or the end of the tribulation period? In the context, yes. In the context, it's not a salvation soteriological passage. It's an eschatological passage. Okay? And so... Marking the midpoint of this tribulation period is the abomination of desolation, spoken by the prophet Daniel. He'll stand in the holy place, and that signals that the end is coming, and things will intensify. Um, and uh, I'm not going to read the whole passage. You've, you've gone over it. But picking it up in verse 21, there will, then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, and the elect I take it to be Israel, the chosen nation of Israel, but for their sake they will be short. If God had extended the tribulation period longer, they would have been exterminated. But God's people are preserved through the tribulation because God cuts short those terrible days of persecution. So now we're beginning to get an idea of what the end means. If we were to outline uh, this discourse, we would see that he's talking about conditions before the tribulation period and then conditions in the first half of the tribulation period where begin, the nations begin to turn against Israel, the midpoint of the abomination, desolation, and then the end of the tribulation where things are intensified but cut short before Israel is exterminated. And so if we were to look at a a chart, we would see that the end here, as used by Matthew, refers to not the end of our physical lives. He's not talking to you and me. He's talking to Israel and the end of the tribulation period. I hope our look at the context has, con context has convinced you of that. Okay? So our understanding of the end, which is used four times here, end of what? It would be the end of the tribulation period, not one's physical life. Okay, are we on the same page with that? By looking at the context, all right? You know, the three major rules of, uh, of um, Bible study are context, context, and context. And you'll find if you pick up my book, Grace, Salvation, and Discipleship, I don't quote a lot of commentaries. I, I did decided not to write the book that way. I wanted to show people how you could answer almost every problem passage that you come across by simply looking at the context. The Bible is the best commentary on itself. Okay? So when we come to this word, the end, we find that it's talking about the end of the tribulation period. So what are the events at the end of the tribulation? Nations come together to destroy Israel, and yet Israel is going to be delivered. Zechariah 12 talks about that, Romans 11:26. all Israel will be saved. Now, we've got to talk about that word. What does it mean, all Israel will be saved? And some think this could include Gentiles because he says, unless those days were shortened, all flesh would, be, uh, would perish. And it, 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 we know that Gentiles do survive the tribulation period too, but this message is to the Jews. Now, let's talk about this word saved. Because when we read it in the Bible, we as Christians often jump to a conclusion. It's talking about our eternal salvation. 
and many times it is. But you know, there, there's a, a number of different ways we can understand this. The Greek word, the Greek verb sozo, uh, actually simply means to deliver or to preserve from something. Uh, that's what it means. And it's used in the New Testament in a number of ways. I've listed six for you here. There's actually more ways you could find in the New Testament. It's used for being saved from physical death. It's used for uh, being saved from unfortunate circumstances. And that's why he tells Timothy to teach these things. And so you will save yourself and those who hear you. Well, Timothy's already saved, but he's saying it'll keep you out of a lot of trouble. It's even used for healing, physical, saved from physical illness. It's used in Matthew 16 of being saved from a futile life where he says uh, you can gain the whole world but lose your own soul. Uh, how can a man say, he talks about how a man can save his life. He's talking to his disciples about how to be saved from a futile life. Now, of course, we're most familiar with being saved from eternal condemnation. That's where we usually use the word. But somebody who I trust has done a study on this, and they found that it's only used this way 36% of the time in the New Testament. So how do we know what, uh, what it means when we read the word saved? It's by looking at the context, right? Context is everything. Context is key. Context is king. Now, it can also mean being saved from one's enemy in the Bible, and it's used that way often in the Old Testament and in the New Testament as well. In fact, when Romans 11.26 says all Israel will be saved, I think it is talking about their spiritual redemption, but it's also talking about their deliverance from all their enemies, referring, I think, to the end of the tribulation period. So when Matthew 24.13 says those who persevere, those in Israel persevere to the end will be saved, they'll be saved from the enemies that he just, Matthew, Jesus just explained in Matthew trying to kill them. Okay, not talking about what we normally would refer to as saving our, our eternal souls. So be careful how you use the word. One conclusion we draw then is that those Jews and maybe Gentiles who persevere in faith until the end of the tribulation will experience deliverance, salvation from their enemies and deliverance into the kingdom of God. Deliverance from and deliverance into. And we should note that God has always preserved a faithful remnant in Israel in spite of the nation's history of disobedience. And that's what grace is all about. Grace is the consistent theme that marks Israel's history. From the very beginning, the nation of Israel began to show their disobedience and defiance of God and killed his prophets and killed his Messiah, and yet God has never given up on Israel that's grace. Grace is everything we need, everything we don't deserve for anything we need. Israel has never deserved God's grace, and yet God has tenaciously held on to them and made his unconditional promises and covenants to them. And he will fulfill those covenants right up to the very end. That's what grace is. So let's talk about some applications. What do we take away from this? First of all, a general one. Be led by the scriptures, not pushed by your theology. Be led by, that's why I call myself a biblicist. And I, I think that's a safer term because that means that I'm going to believe what the Bible says, even if it conflicts with the theological system. Let's be led by the scriptures. Let's put them first, not a theological system. 
Don't be pushed by theology. Secondly, God's grace towards Israel is the same as his grace to us today. That's good news for us. If God could, if God could be faithful to a faithless nation, if God could fulfill his promises to an undeserving people, if God could love and restore those who have always rejected him, what can he do for you and me? Is there any sin in your life that is too big for God's grace? Romans 5 tells us, 520 tells us, where, where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. We can never outrun God's grace. We can never outsin God's grace. That's why we call it amazing grace. God's grace towards Israel is the same grace that's displayed towards you and me. He's called, God is called the God of all grace in 1 Peter 4. And in, and in John chapter 1, Jesus came full of grace and truth. And he came to forgive every sin. There's no sin in your life beyond the grace of God. I don't care what you've done and how many times you've done it. And if you'll do it again tomorrow, there's no sin in your life that is too great for God's grace. That should put a smile on your heart. Third, our eternal salvation does not depend on our perseverance and our performance. Because then we're intruding through our performance, what the Bible would call works or human merit, instead of relying on what God has done for us. And so our fourth point is that our eternal security comes from God's preservation, not our perseverance. And so when we talk about the security of our salvation. I don't like to use the word perseverance because there's no security in that. I'm going to let God down somewhere, sometime, probably before I, I get back to Texas tonight, I will let God down, okay? But if my salvation depends on God's preservation and his grace, he will never let me down. And then I can rejoice in the security and the full assurance of my salvation instead of living in fear and doubt. And because we know that God secures and preserves us, we can have that full assurance. Let me just say that in the Christian community in the United States, there is a severe deficit of full assurance. There are so many people who may be Christians or call themselves Christians, and they may be, who just do not know with full certainty that they are saved. And I don't know why it's different interpretations. They've fallen in different theological systems and, you know, under different kinds of preaching. But it, it grieves my heart that people are not rejoicing in the salvation that God has guaranteed to us. Now, I go overseas quite a bit. I've been in four countries already this year and three more this spring and summer. And when I go over there, I'm telling you that people live in fear. They live in fear and doubt. Why? Because all they're told to do is you have to do more, you have to do better, you have to do this, you have to do that. They're living under the law. An Indian pastor came to our training in March, and he said, he testified at testimony time at the end of the week. He stood up and he said, I came here to find fault with the professors and find fault with the other pastors. But what I discovered is I've been living under the law. And he says, now I know the truth and I'm going to be a devoted follower of Jesus Christ. This is a pastor over several churches, as most Indian pastors are. 
And they live in fear and doubt because they don't trust the promise of God. They're looking at their own performance. And then finally, God will ultimately deliver those who trust in him. That's his promise to us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. There's no ifs, there's no maybes, there's no hopeful language there. It is a certain promise. And those who trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior from sin, the one who died on the cross and rose again and makes us that promise, are delivered from death and from hell and from condemnation forever. And we can live in the full assurance of the truth. Amen. Well, I cover that passage in this book, so I don't have a printout on it. You can look at, look at the book um, and 130 other passages about. And I've just really enjoyed the time with you so much. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and how magnificent the grace of God is that though we were sinners, Christ died for us not because we deserved it. And what a painful, excruciating death he died on our behalf. And he didn't do it to start our salvation. He did it to finish our salvation. And so we trust fully in him today. And if there are any here today, Lord, who have doubts about their salvation or wondering if they can persevere to the end, who know that struggle, they're struggling with sin and will continue to, may continue to struggle with sin, give them victory over sin, but give them the assurance that uh, the Lord Jesus Christ has paid the price and that they can rest in his grace and begin to serve him from a position of rest and peace instead of fear and doubt. So today may that be the day, today be the day of their salvation where they say, I'm trusting fully in what Jesus has done for me. Lord, we thank you for the conference and wonderful fellowship we're having and the things that we're learning and seeing together. And we give you the glory. It's all by your grace in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources, or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. See you next time.